Hey folks, Stephen here. We are headed into the holidays fast. We're feeling very thankful and very generous. So we want to give back to you, give you some deals headed into the end of the year. If you use the promo code podcast to either buy a membership to GTM Squared, our premium service, or sign up for our storage summit in December in San Francisco, you're going to get deep discounts. So you'll get $50 off a yearly membership to GTM Squared by using the promo code podcast. Go to gtmsquared.com and sign up between now and December 31st. And we're also giving away 20% discounts to anybody who signs up for our storage summit in December. Again, that's in San Francisco. Just check out using the promo code podcast. That is your magic word for the end of 2018. We hope to see you at Storage Summit. We hope you can be a member of GTM Squared, and thank you very much. Also, thanks to our sponsors, Wonder Capital and Shoals Technologies Group. Wonder Capital is the industry's leading solar investment platform. GTM ranks Wonder as the top financier of commercial solar in the U.S., so if you want your project financed or you want to invest in solar, sign up at wondercapital.com GTM. Shoals Technologies Group is the industry's top equipment maker for solar and storage, and your project deserves the best balance of systems tech so you can drive down costs and boost performance. There is only one place to turn, that is Shoals, and you can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Welcome, I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Indoor farming is having a moment. And no, we're not talking about greenhouses. Venture capitalists are investing hundreds of millions of dollars into vertical farming startups growing in urban industrial facilities. Cities are easing restrictions to encourage more plant factories. And even Elon Musk's cousin founded a vertical farm. So this week, we're tackling this booming business. What's driving it? What's the potential? And most importantly, what are the energy consequences? Shil Khan's my co-host. He's here with me. He is our chief grow officer here on The Interchange. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm good. I will happily accept that title. Do you have a green thumb? Uh, I'm attempting to have a green thumb. The one thing I'm good at growing is hot peppers because I make my own hot sauce. So I've somehow figured out how to grow hot peppers, partially because they're really actually pretty hard to kill. Everything else, I uh, I have a very successful track record of killing. <laughs> Same here. Shale is the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. And um, many of our planning calls start with Shale getting really excited about a topic and me just sort of agreeing and saying, sure, I like that. And this topic today was one that really caught my ear when you pitched it. So why is indoor agriculture on your mind? Well, indoor agriculture is, I think, interesting of its own right for many reasons that we'll talk about th that uh, it can solve a lot of problems, it can solve a lot of problems with agriculture, providing it to cities, you know, reducing the need for water and transportation, all these other things. So it's it's interesting on its own, but I personally am an energy guy. For whatever reason, I, I seem to look at everything through the energy lens and probably always will. So the reason that I find indoor agriculture so interesting is that as I have learned, it has, um, one, the potential to deliver a lot of new energy consumption, specifically electricity consumption. And two, it has a pretty unique profile in terms of load um, for electricity and a profile that can potentially be, if harnessed in the right way, actually really valuable to the grid. So I'm interested to know more both about indoor agriculture in general, but then in particular to figure out like what is this resource as it pertains to the grid, as we start to see more load from it and 
what can we do to maximize its value? So are you guys monitoring this space at EIP? Yeah, we definitely are. With casual fascination or with an eye toward making deals? No, definitely the latter. I mean, it, it stands to reason, right? EIP is is backed by a coalition of 14 utility companies. And so our mandate is to go off and invest in, in companies that are going to be strategic to those utilities, whether because they can work with them or partner with them or disrupt them or something. Indoor agriculture is, you know, potentially a huge area of new load growth for utilities. It's probably second to transportation in terms of the potential for new load over the next 30 years or something like that. So very interesting. And as we'll talk about, there is a clear role for utilities in both supporting the development of indoor agriculture and in making sure that the the grid benefits as a result. I am very intrigued by this, and I did a lot of crash research for the show. So I am admittedly new to this topic, and it sounds like Shale has done a lot of research but is still in the exploratory phase himself. We brought someone here to join us who has studied the space deeply and who has also worked at a vertical farming startup herself. Our guest is Logan Ashcraft, an indoor ag expert who is based out of San Francisco. Hey, Logan, how are you? Hey, Stephen. Shale, doing well. It's a beautiful day here on the West Coast. And I got to ask you, how good are you at growing plants indoors? I'm not very good. Um, I've got two in front of me. Uh, One of it is showing signs of nutrient depletion and dehydration, despite that I water it exactly on the schedule that it's supposed to have. And the other one, my bookshelf plant is doing pretty well. So I guess we're one for two. So Logan specializes in low-carbon infrastructure. Uh, She recently was an associate over at Generate Capital, where she did a bunch of research on the energy profile of indoor agriculture. And then later, she was the energy program manager at the indoor farming startup Plenty, which raised a Series B uh, worth $200 million. So we're going to talk to Logan about what indoor agriculture actually is, how we define it, and what the energy profile of these facilities actually looks like. So Logan, let's start with some terminology. What is indoor farming as we're defining it? There are a lot of terms that are thrown around. Um, Vertical farming, indoor agriculture, controlled environment agriculture, I think. Uh, there's, There's a bunch. So what terms are we using and can we agree on one? So yeah, there are quite a few terms in this industry, and I think it's really important that we are precise. So a term we hear a lot, controlled environment agriculture, often goes by the acronym CEA, really refers to anything that is not grown traditionally outdoors in the field. So that encompasses everything from hoop houses, which you might see when you're just driving down the road and you look into a field and you might see a few rows of crops that are covered in kind of temporary plastic structures to prevent usually seedlings from the elements. Um, It can also include greenhouses that have glass ceilings and let some sunlight in. And it can also include plant factories. Plant factories are structures that are entirely closed to sunlight that are used to grow crops using artificial light only. So in the context of this conversation and in the electrification of agriculture, I think it's safe to assume that we'll be referring mostly to that third plant factory model. Right. So that's where we talk about the the fully indoor agriculture that 
basically is replacing sunlight as the form of energy to grow crops with electricity for the most part. That's the the, the thing that distinguishes it from greenhouses, for example, uh, in our context. So there's a whole bunch of companies that are going after this indoor ag or this plant factory model. You used to work at Plenty, which as Stephen mentioned, you know, perhaps is actually the most highest, the highest flying one of them because SoftBank decided to make its investment in in plenty. So that was a $200 million individual investment, which is what SoftBank does. But there are a bunch of others. So can you kind of walk us through like the lay of the land on the startup landscape? Who are the major companies? How do we think about what distinguishes them from each other, et cetera? Sure. So we've seen we've seen a lot of activity in this space in the past year. Um, I think it's important to keep a watchful eye on who is receiving investment versus who is selling in grocery stores. So um, we've seen produce from companies like Aero Farms and Bowery actually in grocery stores. There's also a company called Gotham Greens that is an indoor grower that is selling in stores. Um, There are other companies kind of popping up that are very R&D heavy and very marketing heavy. And so the rule of thumb that I like to use when looking at this space is, is it being sold in a grocery store? Um, And if so, at what price point? I think that having, having the ability to meet a demanding offtake contract and do so at a price that competes with the commodities that are grown in the field is is really the metric that helps us figure out which of these companies we should take the most seriously. But you know where we stand today, which Logan alluded to, is you know you can in some places right now go into a grocery store and buy leafy greens that were grown in a plant factory. Um, What's interesting about it, sometimes it's not that obvious. Depends on their packaging. You don't really know um, whether it was or it wasn't. That's that's a good thing, I think. You know, you can decide how you feel about it. But it's pretty limited. Um, just a few places, few types of grocery stores, small parts of the country. So I think what we're talking about today is sort of working under the assumption that this does continue to grow and that it proliferates across the country or at least good chunks of the country. And then we're asking the question of what is that going to mean from an energy context. So I think that's maybe a good segue to the basic question about that, Logan, which is, say I'm running a plant factory, um, how much energy am I consuming roughly? You know, how big a cost is that to me? Um, Broad strokes, like what's my energy profile? So in broad strokes, the energy load for a plant factory can be really difficult to estimate because it varies a lot across geography and especially across what type of crop you're growing. If we're talking about leafy greens and we are assuming that the growing lights are on in a day cycle for about 18 hours every day and off for about six hours every day so the plants can go into a night cycle, we estimate anywhere between a peak load of 10 to 18 megawatts. So it's pretty significant. Right. So like to just to contextualize that, right? That's, you know, you know, you put a you put solar on a Walmart rooftop and you're adding a megawatt or two typically and that'll that'll fill the majority of that building's load. So it's 
significantly more than most other buildings of that size. The only thing that I can think of that has like significantly more energy density, energy load density is a data center. So I think it sits somewhere between like retail or even industrial manufacturing on one side and data centers on the other side. Yep. That's exactly the analogy that I like to use with chatting and chatting with people about this. I think it's on par with this a small data center. So the thing that distinguishes a plant factory from a data center is that it has a very different load profile. Um, so can you talk, you mentioned the growth cycle, the daily growth cycle. Can you just go a little bit more into what that means in terms of energy consumption from a plant factory? So great question. I don't think we have seen a load profile quite as exciting or as malleable as the one associated with a plant factory. And I'm really excited to get into the details. So as we mentioned, most leafy greens require a day cycle and a night cycle. So inside the plant factory, we try to mimic what we see in nature. The LED growing lights are on for about 18 hours a day. And with the lights, we also have a really substantial HVAC load, which can, which can be as much of an electricity draw as the lights themselves, depending on how much moisture the plants are putting into the air. So we have this monstrous daytime load. But then at the same time, every day, each growing cycle, we turn the growing lights off. And when those lights turn off, the HVAC is also significantly ratcheted down and we shed about 75% of the total load. And so the beauty of these day and night cycles is that they can be scheduled to both optimize for the cheapest electricity and create more flexibility on the grid by having that trough in your load curve occur when the rest of the grid is peaking. Only here on the interchange do we describe load profiles as extremely exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. I mean, this is that's the key point. Just to, to put a finer point on what Logan just said, it's got you've got six hours a day when you're gonna ratchet your load down seventy five percent. And that six hours can be any time because this is all indoors. There is no external environment input. So you can schedule the eighteen hours on and the six hours off according to whatever you want. And because energy is your the biggest chunk of your OPEX cost, probably what you want to schedule it according to is the cost of energy. That's exactly right. And another very exciting wrinkle is that most growing cycles are 28 days long. So that means that you can harvest about 12 times a year. And it also means that you can change that load shedding around to suit the season or weather. So in the summer, it probably makes most sense to go offline in the early evening when air, condition, air conditioners are peaking. Something else that we should draw attention to is the fact that most plant factories can unexpectedly turn their lights out for a period of four to six hours without impacting the product itself. So that means if there is a demand response event or extreme weather or unexpected outage on the grid for any reason, the grid operator can signal this event to the plant factory. The plant factory can go offline and prevent price price spikes for other ratepayers. It's effectively like a fake version of a cloudy day or a stormy day or something like that. It doesn't kill the crops to 
to turn off the lights for a few hours. That's exactly right. It doesn't kill the crops and it it makes things a whole lot easier on the grid infrastructure and cheaper for ratepayers because you avoid that spike in delivery costs that occurs with extreme weather or outage. So that's another interesting distinction between a data center and a plant factory, which is a data center absolutely needs to be running 24-7, the result of which is that they have uninterruptible power supplies. We talked to Brian Janice a while back from Microsoft who made the point that at Microsoft data centers, for every megawatt of load that they have, they have a megawatt of backup generation because they can't afford an outage of any kind. Very different to be able to afford you know, a few hours of outages whenever you need to. Is the result of that that these plant factories don't really think about backup power and reliability? Is that just not a big concern for them? It's certainly a topic of discussion. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a topic of concern. In order for a plant factory to undergo substantial impact from an outage, it would need to be on the magnitude of eight hours or 12 hours or a couple of days. And typically in that time span, it's pretty easy easy to find a portable generator that you can rent and get up and running within that initial four to six hour window when the product is not damaged. Coming up, how indoor grow operations and utilities can better manage that load. First, though, are you a solar developer having trouble securing financing for your commercial solar projects? Well, you're not alone because it's a pretty common thing in commercial solar. Well, our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. Since 2015, Wonder Capital has financed over 85 megawatts of small commercial solar projects across the U.S. The company's blowing up. And Wonder's sophisticated software platform means solar developers can receive loan terms within two business days and a contract for a project within two weeks. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com financing. That's Wonder with a U. Wondercapital.com financing. Wonder Capital, powering the commercial solar industry. And of course, securing the best financing terms possible means securing the best equipment possible. And our other sponsor, Shoals Technologies Group, can help with that. Shoals makes best-in-class equipment to support your solar or storage project. Junction boxes, combiner boxes, monitoring systems, whatever you need to drop costs and boost performance, Shoals makes it. Shoals is an American company focused on American quality, and they've been serving the industry since the 90s. The leading developers, they all trust Shoals. For the best equipment in the market, go to Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. So let's talk about how the plant factories are managing this currently. Because, you know, their biggest problem, or maybe one of their biggest problems right now, is that they need to be able to make money on these crops. And they're spending a ton of money on energy. So, you know, to date, what is their strategy to deal with that? You know, I think the short answer would be that the strategy is still being developed. Non-existent? Um, <laughs> I, well, I can say, you know, at least for Plenty, um, I outlined a strategy that will I think will be really effective. And, and there is a smart way to do it, but it absolutely hinges on collaboration with regulators and utilities. At the end of the day, plant factories will be price takers when it comes to their economics on energy, and it's really important to manage that. So we've definitely seen turbulence in this space. Um, A couple of examples, uh, my former CEO, Matt Bernard at Plenty, 
has said in an interview that the company would survive and really benefit with a three to five cent per kilowatt hour price on electricity. Um, the folks over at Urban Ag News, when we spoke with Chris Higgins, um, he gave a more lenient estimate and said that he thinks a break-even point for these growers would be seven to nine cents per kilowatt hour. Um, but this does not stack up well against the national average of 11 cents for commercial and industrial consumers. Which is also another reason why utilities actually really want to work with these plant factories, because they bring jobs, right? I mean, you know, you're they're going to be trying as hard as they can to automate as much of it as possible. But, you know, what utilities are thinking about and what regulators are thinking about if they're considering cutting any kind of a deal on electricity to somebody to come into a territory is whether it's going to create benefits, local economic development benefits, among other things. And so there's an argument for plant factories that it will. Um, but back to the energy question. I mean, I guess so, you know, I could imagine that uh plant factory operators are going around the country to utilities and to regulators and saying, hey, I can build a new factory in your territory. It's going to bring some jobs. And just as importantly, it's going to bring a whole bunch of new load. Um, Cut me a sweet deal on electricity. One, is that what's happening? And two, is it effective? That is a strategy that some farm operators are using. I don't think it's particularly feasible um, or effective. And that is because, you know, we, the three of us here, we're, we're familiar with the rate making process. Um, we know that electricity is a public good. And so despite the potential slew of public health and education benefits that having better access to food could bring to a community, it's not quite enough to put a PUC over the edge and offer dirt cheap rates to a plant factory, which is, by the way, in a pretty nascent young industry um, at the expense of all of the other rate payers. So we need to get more creative in how we structure this approach. Right. So what do you think? Or what's the right approach? So I have some ideas on this. Um, the thing I think that would be most helpful far and away um, is, well, two things. Uh, first of all, the maintenance of existing time of use rates. As, as we've discussed, the load curve here is super malleable and that enables plant factories to take advantage of time of use rates. Um, but I would push that one step further and I would say that implementation of dynamic rates that are updated in real time, um, whether it be you know hourly or once or twice a day, um, to reflect the true cost of electricity and congestion on the grid. So if those rates are constantly changing, plant factories can benefit from them by taking advantage of the cheapest possible electricity. Um, and utilities can help offload generation that might not typically be consumed. So for example, uh, this type of structure could certainly help alleviate the negative pricing issue we have here in California um, with a lot of solar on the grid. So you have this very predictable load, which you can do unique things with to serve the, the grid. In California, for example, you have this oversaturation of renewables at times, and plant operators are for, forced to curtail, and that problem is only increasing. Uh, you also have this duck curve where you have oversaturation of solar in the middle of the day, and then you have this extreme load ramp toward the evening when everyone gets home and they leave work and so forth. And so uh, these plants can be cycled so that 
they're soaking up a lot of that excess solar power in the middle of the day. It seems to me to be an obvious tool to to manage the grid with a lot of renewables on it. I completely agree. I like to refer to plant factories as liposuction on the belly of the duck. Oh, I love that. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, and I, you know, rate structures are probably the most important thing, but it's also probably worth noting there's other things that that regulators and policymakers and utilities can do to try to make sure that the the ultimate profile of plant factories is beneficial. They could do things to support energy efficiency, for example, um, and to incentivize the use of energy efficient LEDs and HVAC systems. And so, you know, it, it goes beyond just rate making, but I do think that rate making is probably the most important component. I agree. Um, we've seen efficiency rebates really encourage and help defray uh, construction costs in these in these plant factories. Um, for example, Puget Sound Electric offers a capex rebate program that will actually help any new construction customer in their territory defray costs spent on extra efficient equipment. A big problem that often occurs is that these plant factories are being built in urban centers, and so what used to be just you know a warehouse that did not require that much power now needs to support a 10 megawatt peak. And those upgrade costs can be absolutely stifling. So anything that utilities can do to help rebate that those CapEx investments over time can be extremely helpful as well. There's an even bigger issue to this, and that is the sustainability piece. So clearly, you can use these facilities to better match grid needs. And you, because of their predictable load, can sell them cheap renewable electricity but we have to do that in order to make these facilities sustainable. Um, otherwise, they're just, you know, buying coal electricity. Uh, so it seems to me that there's a really important sustainability imperative here if we truly want to call these facilities clean and, and better than traditional agriculture. Though I think you also need to, I mean, if, if you're taking the broader sustainability picture, it's probably important also to note all the other sustainability benefits of of indoor agriculture, ranging from lower transportation and logistics and the emissions associated with that, significantly lower water usage. I've heard one plant factory operator say 90%, 98% less water versus an outdoor farm, you know, no need for pesticides. Like there's all these other benefits too. That is a fair point, Shale, but I, I think it's important to have a healthy dose of skepticism, um, especially on the water piece. So um, most indoor indoor farms, whether it be a greenhouse or a plant factory, it's probably safe to say they use 75 to 90% less water than the field. So I think that we can address that water scarcity issue if we're in a greenhouse. Um, to me, the, the big ticket issue here really is um, electricity. All right, Logan, I got to ask you, since you, you've studied this space very closely and you know it well, help us with a bet. Last week, Shale bet me and our listeners that uh, in the next 10 or 15 years, we'd be getting 20% of our food from these plant farms. What do you think about that projection? Would you take that bet? So 20% of all of our food from plant factories. That's Shale's wager. No, that is not my wager. My wager was that 20% 20, 20 of her produce 
20 percent of bugs personal produce will come from an indoor from indoor farms that is what i meant i was just a little over broad in my characterization but yes bugs as in insects (laughs) we didn't really explain what are you guys talking about (laughs) okay i wrote an article that was making a bunch of bets about the future of somebody named bug which is the nickname for my colleague's daughter who's due to be born in two months so it's basically a person born in 2019 and it's bets about her life. Um, one of the bets was by the time she shops for her own groceries, 20% of her produce will be grown indoors. I should note that she's probably going to be an urbanite. So that was another factor in my, in my bet. 20%. Huh? So Shale, I'm not sure if you made the best possible wager, unfortunately, And I'll tell you why. Um, In this conversation, we've been focused heavily on leafy greens. And while leafy greens are very nutrient dense, they're not very calorie dense. So there are a lot of other pieces of produce in our basket that we need on a daily basis to meet calorie requirements. Uh, The other cruel twist in this conversation is that we've been Again, talking about leafy greens, but flowering fruits and vegetables like strawberries, for example, require much greater light intensity. And this results in a lot of extra heat and moisture in the plant factory, which means that our HVAC load is also going through the roof. So solving the energy cost question is certainly a prerequisite to getting to anywhere near that 20% number. Logan Ashcraft is an expert on indoor agriculture, particularly as it relates to energy use. Uh, You're also co-authoring a paper with Shale and an energy systems engineer. What is that going to be about? So I'm super excited about this. I'm co-authoring a paper with my friend and colleague, Dr. Zach Pisonic, and with Shale. And we are focusing on how indoor agriculture and plant factories in particular can be integrated into the grid at scale. So we will look really closely at different types of rate setting mechanisms that can be used to support this growth. And then we'll also look at more downstream effects like integration of more renewables and a lower cost of energy for all rate payers as a result of the introduction of this very flexible load. Yeah, I'm finding it a totally fascinating area and worthy of being fleshed out a bit more than we've talked about right now. You know, we've talked about things like dynamic rates, but what do we really mean? What impact does that have on the economics of these facilities and so on? So look out for it. Once uh, once we get it out into the public world, it should be good. Well, thank you, Logan. We appreciate you coming on the show. This was fun. Thanks so much, guys. Great to see you. Shail Khan is my co-host. What are you having for lunch? Are you going to a farm and get some leafy greens grown indoors? Yeah, why not? I'm, I live in Berkeley. I'm confident that there's some sort of an indoor farm here. I just got to go hunting for it. <laughs> Please take a picture, share it on Twitter. And if you want to know more about the energy equation for these facilities, hit us up on Twitter or send us an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com. And also give us a rating and review on any platform where you find this podcast. Thank you all for being here with us. With Shail Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. 